Last week we had our Father's Day uh, service talked about the, the need for mighty men of God. And uh, this week we jump back into our study on the church. We're getting uh, closer to the end of it. And uh, again, this is just a, a great resource for us as the church to look back on our history, look back on our heritage as the church and, and draw from that first church examples and lessons along the way. And last, uh, the last message that we had in this uh, study was another example of that. It said, uh, this is the, the point we had, it said, misperceptions, misunderstandings, and miscommunications are detrimental to people's lives and the life of the church. Again, that's just an obvious truth. You know, people miscommunicate about something, they misunderstand. Uh, there's a, a misperception about something, and, and it can sometimes ruin people's lives. Um, and again, that's obviously evident in the church that, that it can destroy, it can hinder, it can hurt people's lives. Uh, when we are misperceiving something or we are, mis, uh, we, are, we are assuming things about people or we're misunderstanding and then miscommunicating about it. And so uh, we saw this in Acts chapter 21, verse 38. It says, then you are not the Egyptian. This was the commander of the Roman cohort. And uh, he was talking to Paul. Paul had addressed him and, and he obviously was speaking a language that uh, wouldn't have been uh, the e uh, e Egyptian. And so he says, so you're not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins in, uh, out into the wilderness. And Paul said, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Cis uh, Sicily, uh, so, I'm sorry, Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city. And I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And if you'll remember, if you're here, the crowd of people were stirred up against Paul. They, the, the local government was going to lock Paul up, again, all based off of this misunderstanding and this, this miscommunication that was going on. All of that was derived, though, from people who had wrong hearts. And that's easy to do, even in the church. When our heart's not right with the Lord, it's not right with other people in the church, then we can easily misperceive things, and we can easily misunderstand things, and easily miscommunicate things, and end up hurting people in the church. And again, that's key. Because when love, what we're supposed to be as the people of God defined by, when love is what we're truly operating in, then there isn't this, this bent that we have in the flesh to look for and to even believe the negative in people, right? If, if love is what we're operating in, then you can, you can see your brothers and sisters in Christ and you're not automatically thinking the negative. And I want to challenge you this morning, if that's what you're experiencing, you walk into this church and you're looking at a brother or sister in Christ and, and your heart is bent to, to think something contrary, to think something negative, or to think that they're thinking something negative, then I challenge you this morning, ask God to, to, to help you. Ask God to heal your heart. Because it's, it's hard in a negative world not to think negatively. We should enter into this church, though, with love governing our hearts. We should enter into every day of our life like that. And I think a whole lot changes when we truly operate in love, when we are truly the people of God who truly love one another and truly operate like that. I think a whole lot changes. I don't think it just changes in the church. I think it changes in the community. I think it changes in our world. But we'll move on this morning, and we're going to see this amazing defense that Paul gives. And I, I love this. If you give yourself the kind of the, the, the situation, again, he's, he's been beaten he's been locked up uh they were they were about to even take it even further and paul speaks up and says, hey can i say something and before it gets really severe in his life he has this opportunity to the, to address the government right what an amazing blessing that would be 
And, and, and again, we always have to grab context. The, the, the Roman kingdom, the Roman empire at this point in time was dominating everything. Uh, again, Israel had its, its freedom and its religion, but Rome was in control. And uh, it was in control of everywhere. And so this is what the Jews lived under. They could operate in their religious system. And as long as the Jews took care of their own religious issues and took care of all of that, then the Roman government wouldn't have to get involved. But when the Roman government got involved, it was a serious matter. That's where we find ourselves. It's both the religious Jews that are stirred up and the Roman government is trying to figure out, okay, what can we do to stop this ruckus so that we don't lose our power? These local officials don't lose their power. Paul, in the middle of all of this, his life's on the line. He's about to get locked up. He's already been beaten. He's about possibly to die. Again, it says that, that they were about to kill him before the Roman uh, uh, the, the, the commander showed up. And here he has an opportunity. He has, an, he has a forum to address these people, these accusers, these people who are falsely accusing him, who are wanting to kill him. He has an opportunity to speak. So I want to pray, and then we'll read what he, he says to them. Father, thank you once again for what you have done in this place already. Thank you so much uh, for the opportunity we have to worship you and to, uh, to hear from you and your word. Uh, Lord, the opportunity we have to serve one another. I'm so thankful for uh, the many people in this church that serve. Lord, we think about what happened yesterday in our uh, worker meeting. Uh, just volunteers coming and, and being encouraged and challenged. And uh, Lord, we, we're blessed in this church to have so many people doing so many things. And um, Lord, it's not to be busy. It's not to say that we're doing things, Lord, but we, are, we have the privilege to set our mind on, on things above. We have the privilege and the honor and the, and the charge to set our affection, our mind on things above, not on things of this earth. And we have the opportunity to serve one another and to serve you, Lord. And I just thank you for that. Thank you for this church, Lord. We thank you for, again, this time now. We ask you to move in this place and uh, just have your way. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 22, brethren and fathers, this is Paul speaking. Hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet, and he said this. So remember, you got people who are speaking Greek, uh, Aramaic, is, Aramaic and, and Greek. There are some common languages in, in, in that day and time, but the Jews still had their distinct language, which is Hebrew. And so uh, Paul, and he addressed this to the Corinthians, that he had the gift of tongues. He had, different, he had the, 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 the blessing, the gift from God to be able to speak in different languages. And so here he is utilizing these gifts and he's speaking to these now, these accusers in, in the Hebrew dialect. And he says, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. So Paul kind of makes this common ground with him and says, listen, you guys got to know, I was raised the, of the, the strictest sex. I was, I was of the most rigid of the religious crowd, just like you guys are. Just as amped up as you are, that's, that was me. My whole life, this is what brought, you know, it brought me to the place that you were today. And, and, and matter of fact, he goes on and says, I persecuted this way, the way that he's following now in Jesus Christ. I persecuted this way to death. I, I, I was binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And then he says this, and as also the high priest and all of the council that was by there of the elders can testify. They all can say, they all can testify that I was, I was doing this. This was my life. I was Saul. 
the persecutor of the church. I was Saul, the Pharisee. I was Saul, the, the, the most passionate leader against the church of Jesus Christ. He said, from them I also received letters to the brethren. And I started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on my way, approaching Damascus about noontime, that a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you're persecuting. And those who were there with me, they, they saw the light, to be sure. But they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see, because of the brightness of that light, I was blinded, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by, the, by all the Jews who lived there, he came to me and he was standing near, uh, and standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him. And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now I want to pause in this defense right now because I think it's important to establish what, what, what's being said here in the text. Because again, we have translations and if you speak any other language, you know that there's not an exact translation from one language to the next. That's why... Um, it, it's hard to sometimes grab the full meaning uh, in, in what's being said. But a literal translation of this would reveal that there's two commands in a very strict sense in this. And each is associated with the participle with which it has, has the command attached to it. And so the command to be baptized is connected with the words get up, which are one word in the Greek and a participle. While the command to wash away your sins is connected with a participle calling on his name. So baptism doesn't, of course, cleanse from sin. We know that. But we know, according to Scripture, that calling on his name, calling on the Lord, faith, does wash away our sin. So to summarize it up with a little bit of a more of a literal rendering, it says this, having gotten up, be baptized, having already called on the name of the Lord and been cleansed from your sins. So he continues, he says, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. I want you to just pause for a second and think about what Paul is telling them about what God did in his life. He's saying that, God, everybody knows in this whole region, in Jerusalem, all throughout, you know, this, 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 from Cilicia, all, this whole region, they know that I went 
from synagogue to synagogue where all these people were turning to Christ, all these people were putting faith in this Jesus the Nazarene, they know that I was, I was breaking down their house's doors. I, I was going into their homes, and I was dragging men and women. Everybody knows me. Everybody knows that's who I was. He said, even to the point that when, your blood, uh, when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing by approving of it and, why, and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. Jesus said to him, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. If you notice at the beginning when he began to speak to them in the Hebrew dialect, they all grew silent. They all gave him full attention. And they were tracking with his testimony. He, they were, they, he was captivating them with this testimony of his conversion. But as soon as he got to this point, these religious Jews, when he got to this point, about going to the Gentiles, it says they listened to him up to this statement, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Can you, can you imagine such a disdain for a group of people? I mean, these Jews thought they were so righteous and religious that they didn't even think that the Gentiles were worthy to hear about Jesus Christ. They, they, didn't, they didn't believe in Jesus themselves, and they didn't even think that Paul, okay, this is a good story. It's amazing. It's a great transformation of life, Paul. But you had us up to that point. You said you're going to go to those Gentiles and tell them some good news. They were so against it. Let's get the statement again. For he should not be allowed to live. What, he, what had he done to them? Had he hurt their family? Had he destroyed their homes? Had he done anything against them? No, he had persecuted the Christian church. Nobody had offended these Jews in, in, in their personal lives. It's just they didn't like the fact that Jesus came on the scene, brought the good news that it was faith through, in faith in him alone that they could be saved, and that Paul was perpetuating that message. They hated that because they had their own system of religion. They had their own way that they thought that they were righteous in themselves. So what they did is as they were crying out and throwing off their cloaks and Tossing dust in the air. Can you imagine? That looks like what, what a fit that these Jews were throwing, right? Like they're throwing the clothes off, ah, throwing dust in the air. Calm down. So chaos ensues. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging. The, another word is flogging. If you know what that is, it's similar to what Jesus went through before he was crucified. Why was, the, why was the commander taking, I mean, these people were causing the uproar. These people were, you know, acting like fools. Paul's standing by, he just gave a defense, and all of a sudden they start roaring, uh, you know, uh, up, uproaring again. And so he takes Paul, takes him into the, the prison, and they stretch him out lock him up, and they're going to examine him. They're going to try to get down to the bottom of this so they might find out the reason why they were shouting against him that way. That, that was the Roman solution. We'll just get brutal. That's how the Romans operated. We'll just get brutal. We'll get down to the, 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 the bottom of this. But when they stretched him out with thongs, they, they, they stretched him out. He was about to be uh, beaten. Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, which centurion was over many 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 men 
He looked over at the guy who was overseeing it, and he said, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? Somebody who hasn't been convicted? Somebody who hasn't gone to trial? Is it, is it lawful for you to, to beat a Roman citizen who hasn't gone through the, the right trial process? And when he said this, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander who was carrying all this out, and he said, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman. Did you not know this? I, what, what, you're about to cause all of us to get in major trouble. The commander came to him and said, tell me, are you a Roman? The commander is, is, is now pretty afraid. Are you a Roman? He asked Paul. And he said, yes. The commander answered, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. See, the, the Roman uh, government, it's interesting how, how similar uh, some of the things that we, we know today in, in our country, uh, similar to the, to the Roman Empire. You could buy, buy your citizenship. If you weren't a natural-born citizen, you could, you could buy a, your citizenship. And this commander had done that. And he became a Roman citizen, and he was in the, the military, and he had, a, he had a ranking there. But Paul said this, that I was actually born a citizen. Paul was a, a natural-born Roman citizen. So look what happens. And therefore, those who were about to examine him immediately let, let go of him, unlocked him, said, whoa, back off. The commander also was afraid when he found out that he was a Roman. And because he had put chains in him. But on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priest, the Jewish council, all the council, to assemble. And they brought Paul down and set him before them. All because he shared his testimony of life change. So much to be said here about this discourse. Again, Paul laying out his testimony. What was obvious for him, and it's still obvious today, for everyone like, like Paul. And it is that. He had a very clear life change. See, Paul didn't anywhere in his testimony say that he, he knelt down and he prayed the sinner's prayer. And then after he prayed the sinner's prayer, he knew he was going to heaven. Nowhere did Paul say that. What happened in Paul's life? According to Paul's testimony, Paul encountered Jesus. No doubt he had already heard the gospel message. That's why he was so vehemently going and trying to take away the people who were spreading the message. He had heard about Jesus. He knew what Jesus had taught. He, he, he heard Stephen's discourse when Stephen was given the gospel message. And then they wanted to stone Stephen, and they did stone Stephen. He heard all of that. Paul had heard the gospel, which is important. Every single person who comes to Jesus has to hear the gospel message first. No doubt he had heard the gospel message. And being a self-righteous Pharisee before, he didn't think he needed to repent. He didn't, he didn't think he needed to trust Jesus. He thought that he was doing everything he could do to be righteous and be able to stand before God one day and be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. So in this, again, he was set against Jesus himself and his bride. Until that road to Damascus experience which changed everything from that point forward. When, when Paul encountered Jesus personally, that's when his life changed. And that is exactly what happens today when someone truly gets saved. And I want you to hear me today. Point number one is this. True life change happens at conversion. True life change happens at conversion. 
The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creature. He's a new being. Old things, they're gone. The old way of life, the old way of living, it's gone. And look, it says, behold, all things have become new. You are a new creature in Christ. When you truly get saved, life change happens. When you are truly converted from a sinner, a lost sinner, doomed for eternal hell, to, to pay for your sins under the wrath of Almighty God, when you go from that state living for sin, living for yourself, living for, for this world and, and possessions, living for money and living for all that stuff, when you go from that to a child of God, to, to someone who leaves all of that behind to follow Jesus and his path, your life changes. The Bible says the old things are gone and all things become new. Jesus said it like this in Luke chapter 9. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and daily and follow me. And listen what he says. For whoever would try to save his life, hold on, but, but I want to do this, I still want to do this. Whoever wants to save his life will actually lose it in the end. But whoever loses his life, who gives it up for my sake, for Jesus' sake, will save it. And listen to the question he poses here. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? If you have every possession and all the money, what does it profit you if you have all of that and lose or forfeits himself, his soul? In John chapter 8, he would say, say it like this. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, look, this woman's been caught in the act of uh, adultery, in the very act. We saw her. What were you doing watching her? <laughs> that was one of the problems. We saw this woman performing this, this, this adulterous act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? Trying to trap Jesus. They were testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him, so that they get rid of him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote in the ground. A lot of debate and discussion on what Jesus wrote in the ground that day. Some believe that it was their sins that they had been committing. Some believe it was the names of some of the women that they may have been in adulterous affairs with. Some believe that he was writing down the Ten Commandments. Regardless, he didn't say a word. He stoops down and starts writing in the ground. But when the, they persisted in asking him, hey, come on, what should we do? He said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. He stood back down and began to write on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman, where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Where are your accusers? Did not one condemn you? Is there no one left to accuse you? She said, No one, Lord. No one's left. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you either. Go and listen to his words. From now on, sin no more. And Jesus, this charge that he was giving here, uh, was, was not to sinless perfection. Similar to that in John chapter 5. It wasn't the, this charge to go and, and be a sinless, perfect 
person because we know that he knew, according to his word, that no one can be sinless in these bodies. He was telling her, don't go and pursue that life of sin anymore. Don't go down that path of sinfulness anymore. A life given over to and lived for sin. Again, he was, he was pointing to an obvious directional change based on his justice and his judgment in her life. Go from this point forward, let your life be changed and go a different direction. You used to live for sin. You used to live for yourself. Now don't do that anymore and go and sin no more. Again, directional change. It's an all-encompassing change. We saw in Paul's testimony, it was a, a life that was completely transformed. Now again, I want to point out this, this fact as well. It doesn't mean that Paul, in his testimony or in his mind, thought that he was as mature at that point of salvation or any point in his life as that he could possibly be uh, in, in God's sight. He, he wasn't saying, look, I, I, I made it. Now I'm standing before you guys and I'm a mature person. My life has changed and now I'm completely mature. We know that Paul didn't think that about himself. Philippians chapter 3 says, not that I've already obtained it or already become perfect. I'm not complete and perfect and mature. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I, also I was laid hold of by uh, Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But I promise you this, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, he was clearly one person before Jesus Christ, against him, hostile towards him, hostile towards his church, living for Paul, trying to be good enough for himself. He was for Paul and he was for the world. But then after he encountered Jesus, it was clear in his own words, his life was different. And please hear me, so is the case for every single person even in this place today. So how do I know the moment that I believe I got saved? How do I know that I got saved? How, how do I know for sure, Brother Kyle, that, that, that when, when I think I got saved, how do I know that I know that I know that I'm going to heaven when I die? I think there's some indicators of, of conversion. I think the Bible tells us that. It tells us that our love changes. The moment that we're converted... Our love changes. Our love for God and our love for others change the moment that we get saved. The love that we used to have for the world and the things in the world changes. In 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, listen to these words, the love of the Father is not in him. It's easy to read that and say, oh yeah, no, I don't love the world. No, no, no. This passion to live for the world, to get stuff in the world, to, to have all this stuff in the world that, that it drives us and it, and it, and it, and it stirs our, our desires and our affections for temporal things. He says, if that's the life you're living, you don't have the love of God in you. He says, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world, it's passing away. And also it's lust, everything, the desires and the, covet, the, the coveting for the things of the world, all that stuff's going away. But one who does the will of God lives forever. John chapter 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, truly my followers, if you have love for one another. When someone truly gets saved, their love for this world 
changes to a love for God. And their love for used to be themselves and what they want begins to be a love for other people. And it doesn't mean that we still don't struggle with that and battle with that in the flesh because we still live in the flesh. But it changes. There's an obvious change. I used to not love God. Now I love God. I used to love the world. Now I'm just kind of done with the world. Man, I, I used to be all about me and taking care of me and all about me. Now I want other people to know Jesus. Now I want to serve other people. I have a desire. I, my love has changed. And again, that, that second word I use, desire, is another thing that changed. Desires change. When someone truly gets saved, our desires change. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves can break into your house and steal things. Don't, don't store up stuff on this earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves can't break in and steal anything there. And then he says this, For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So how do I know that I'm saved? Man, because you have a desire to serve the king. You have a, you have, your desires have changed. I, 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 don't, I don't live only for this world. I don't live for this world. I, I live for him, and I want to have rewards one day to be able to lay at his feet. He goes on to say the, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad... Your whole body be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6, he would go on a little bit further in that same chapter, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. He would go on and say that, that, that people worry about food they eat and clothes they wear and, and, and water they would drink and shelter they have. And he says, listen, all these things the Gentiles, they worry about, but your father knows the things you have need of. Listen, if he knows that when a sparrow falls to the ground, he knows what's going on in your life. He knows the very number of the hairs on your head. So seek his kingdom first, he says. Your desires change. How do I know I'm saved, man? Your love changes, your desires change, and of course your direction changes. Colossians chapter 3, verse 7. In these you too once walked. He talked about the, 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 the Gentiles living for their sins in their flesh. He said, you used to live like that when you were living in them. Your direction, though, has changed. Now that you're in Christ, you no longer live like the rest of the world lives. You no longer look like the world. You no longer sound like the world. You no longer do what the world does. You don't look like them anymore. Why? Because you used to live in those things, and now you don't. Now you're following Christ. Your direction has changed. And, of course, with all this, your thoughts change. Our theme verse is found in Colossians chapter 3 as well. The first few verses, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, if you've died, yourself has died, and, and, and you are a new person in Christ, you've been raised with Christ, then seek things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Because you've died. The, the old person living for Kyle, living for the world, living for selfishness and sin, and, and living, that person's dead. They're gone. And now you're a new person in Christ. And so being a new person in Christ, you have to constantly set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, because you're dead and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Amen. <laughs> That's right. 
If true life change didn't happen, please hear this. If, if this didn't happen in your life, then you aren't saved. That's according to Scripture. That, that's not my opinion. That's not my words. If your life didn't change when you got saved, you aren't saved. That's what Jesus said. That's the reality of Scripture. Now, don't, please don't confuse the struggle with sin, the struggle with the flesh, the temptation and the struggle with the world. Don't confuse that for an absence of salvation. Every single person in this room, no matter how close you are to God, every single one of us battle these things, and we will until we're taken out of this world. We will battle with sin, we will battle with our flesh, and we'll struggle in this world because the world and our flesh and sin are all instruments that the enemy uses. So don't confuse the battle that we all have with the absence of salvation. But it's what we're living for and what we're living in. Are you living for sin? Are you living in sin? Are you living for the world? Are you living in the world and for the world? Are you living for yourself and, 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 and living in your flesh and doing all these things? If that's the definition of your life, then according to Scripture, you aren't a child of God. Nothing has changed. Just because you said a prayer, just because you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave, just because you, 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 the knowledge is there, and maybe you sincerely prayed a prayer, Prayers don't save. Faith does. That's what Jesus said. And faith is an entrustment. That's what Scripture says. Faith is when you are entrusting everything to Jesus. That, that means that at one point in time in your life, just like Paul, you were doing your own thing. You were handling your business. You were, you were living for you. You were, you were doing everything for you, for this world and then when the gospel came to you and you realized you were a sinner and living that life was taking you to hell and you realized that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave and it's that through his payment on the cross, through his life, his resurrection, that you can have life. You said, I'm no longer going to live for that. I no longer want to be a sinner. I no longer want to live in sin. I no longer want to live for this world. I no longer want anything else or anyone else. I want Jesus. And so I'm taking all of my confidence for this life, for my life. I'm taking all of the weight, and I'm entrusting it to Jesus. He is my Lord. I confess him as such. I'll follow you. I, you are my king. You are my God. You are my everything. From this point forward, I'll follow you. If at the time that you wanted to get saved, he said, man, I wanted to do all that. If at that time you still wanted to hold on for something for you, yeah, but can I still do this? Yeah, but, but I, I mean, I want to go to heaven, and I, I believe Jesus loved me that much, and I believe he died on the cross and rose from the grave, and I, and I want to follow Jesus. I want to try to do that, but I still want to be able to do this. I, I, and God will forgive me and accept me. No, no, that wasn't salvation. If you weren't truly converted, then your life didn't change. But if you were converted, your life truly changed. Again, don't, don't confuse sinless perfection with a life change. Second point is this, and we'll close. True life change causes relational strains. 
True life change causes relational strains. It sure would be nice that everybody maybe we were friends with or family that we had that we were close with before we got saved stayed that same way after we got saved. But the reality is, and there's so many people in this room that can testify, when you got saved, most of your friends changed. Most of those relationships changed. A lot of your family relationships changed. See, Paul was buddy-buddy with these guys in the synagogue. He, he, he was the hero of the religious crowd. He would come running back to Jerusalem with a group of, uh, of Christians, and, and they'd be like, yeah, Paul, man, you are nailing it. You are the superstar. Here's some more letters. Go get them, man. And Paul would come back, and, and everybody loved the fact in, in the religious realm that Paul was so amped up and so passionate and so fierce. And, and man, he, he didn't care if it was women, children, kids. I mean, uh, women, children, and men, he didn't care he was all about destroying the church of Jesus Christ. And again, all of that changed when he surrendered to Christ. His friends didn't like that he had a different purpose and perspective. His friends that he used to be buddy-buddy with, that they all had all these things in common with, now he was on the opposite side. And Paul wasn't doing what he used to do. And they didn't like that he was on that other side. His life changed, and it caused relational strain. And that's still the case today. If you got saved, when you believe you got saved, listen, and it didn't change any of the worldly or sinful relationships you had, something's wrong. Something's wrong. I'm not saying that you still can't be friends or you still shouldn't be friends and a witness to those who are lost. Absolutely, man. Some of the most powerful testimonies are that when someone gets saved and the person they're working with sees a life change in, the, in their co-worker. What's going on with you? You're a different person. Why are you talking like that now? Why don't you want to go hang out with us and do this anymore? Why do you want to go do, what's wrong? What are, you're weird now. What? And then and they find out that Jesus changed their life, and then they want to know more about it, and they start asking questions. You invite them to church, and you share the gospel with them, and they end up getting saved because they saw the life change in you. When your life truly changes, you're no longer drinking, you're no longer cursing, you're no longer running around, sleeping around, being unfaithful, living in sin, living for the world. Those people who are doing those things will not like the way they feel when they're around you. You don't have to say a word. The light in you will expose the darkness in them. And they won't like feeling that way. And I think the enemy will try to use them to pull you back as much as possible. And it's not that you're saying, again, anything to them. It's the change in your life that's the difference. I'm not going to read all of Luke chapter 14. But essentially, Jesus gives a parable of a man giving a big supper. And he invites a lot of people to it. The Bible says that they all began to make excuses. The first one says, I, well, I bought a piece of land. I, I got to go look at it. You got to go look at your land. You don't know what it looks like, but you've already bought it. Another bought five yoke of oxen. I got to go test them out, he says. I, gotta, I bought these, these oxen. I got to go see if they work. That doesn't make any sense. Another said, I've married a wife. And just for that reason, I cannot come. <laughs> That's what he says. None of these were worthy of that because they couldn't let go. They couldn't have that life change. But Jesus would go, on, go down and say, count the cost. At the end of this, he would say, therefore, salt is good, but if it's lost, it's savor. If it becomes tasteless, then how will it be used? It's neither good for soil, it's not good for fer fertilizer. He that has here, let him hear. 
He says this in Matthew chapter 10. He says, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. So I thought he was the Prince of Peace. He is. Peace is found in him, not in the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And he states from the prophet Micah, I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he, who's not, uh, he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Please hear me. Jesus gave us the blessing of relationships. He created a husband and a wife. He created the family. Be fruitful and multiply. He said that, that our, the, the children are, are a blessing. They're an inheritance from God. He was never saying in order to be saved, you have to give up all of these relationships. He wasn't saying that. He was saying this, though, there can be no comparison and there can be no competition with him and anyone, including our own self. He must be God. He must be Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. And if it comes down to your family making you choose him or them, there's no competition if he's your God. Would you put the blessings over the one who gave you the blessings in the first place? It's a difficult view and difficult perspective and a direction to live because it's all we know in these earthly bodies. To understand that the earthly relationships we have are blessings from God. They aren't God. They are blessings from him. They aren't to be idols. They are blessings from him. And while we have charges in scriptures that, that concern our spouses, that, that men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives are to submit, and children are to obey, and, and men are to raise their, uh, the, the fathers raise their kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we have all these responsibilities in these relationships. Love one another, love your neighbor as yourself. We are to understand that none of these things are to take the place of God. They aren't ever to be before God. We either trust Him. And have made him our Lord, or we haven't. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between. The commands are clear, very clear. There's only one command given that makes very clear sense in all of this. And he says this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and strength. He says, love your neighbor as yourself, but you love the, the Lord your God everything you have we aren't commanded to love our spouse or our kids or anyone as much as we love god he is to have our best and our greatest love where we get off is when we don't walk with him we get busied about a temporal life and our earthly family that he has blessed us with and that becomes the object and the focus of our life again god gives the blessing he gives us the ministry in the blessings but those are never to interfere with our love and devotion for him. This morning, in light of Paul's testimony of life change and boldness to share, may we be reminded and challenged, listen, if you are not positive that you were truly saved because you can't say that your life truly changed, 
then I'm asking you, please don't leave this place today thinking and hoping that you're going to go to heaven because you thought you did. No today. And if you are sure, you say, absolutely, man, I got saved. I was little, but I know everything changed in my life. Or maybe you were older. Yeah, everything changed in my life. You are sure. Then let's make sure, let's make sure, Christian, that our love for God exceeds every other relationship in this world. But does it? It's easy to say, yes, it does, but does it actually practically look like that in our life? Is your love for God growing and greater than anything you have? It should be. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for what you do in our life. God, thank you for the challenge this morning. God, I know I've been challenged over and over this week going through this. Lord, you are the lover of our soul. You are the God of all creation. You are the God that so loved us that you died for us. You did no sin. There is no unrighteousness in you at all, not, not even a speck. And yet you became sin on our behalf so that we could have your righteousness through Christ Jesus. That's phenomenal grace, God. And I pray that every day of our life we would fall more and more in love with you because we're pursuing you and we're walking with you. We're talking with you. We're in your word. We're talking about you to others. We're sharing you with others and that you will sanctify. You'll continue to make us more like you every day. God, help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to love one another as we love ourselves. And God, again, if there's somebody here that's not positive, that their life changed when they said they got saved, and I pray they would not leave today without making 100% sure that they have entrusted, they have trusted, they have surrendered all to you. And we'll praise you for what you do. Help us respond rightly now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll stand as he sings, I'll invite you to come.